Hello everyone, welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Tina. And my name is Faison. Here on the Metamorphosis podcast, we are interviewing various physicians across BC with the aim of learning more about their specialties and helping us navigate our medical careers. We have a very special guest joining us today, Dr. Manraj Heron, an interventional radiologist who is the week lead for our stroke week. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Heron. Thank you for having me. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit about your journey into medicine, what made you want to join the medical field in the first place? Um, it, it doesn't always sound politically correct, but uh, my, my parents both immigrated from India. Uh, my dad uh, came to, uh, for engineering at the University of Chicago. And at that time, you couldn't actually work and go to school at the same time. And so you know, he unfortunately had to give up his dream of becoming an engineer and had to start working uh, ultimately in a sawmill. My mom is a very driven woman, a very, very smart person, who also, uh, through a generational uh, type of thing, wasn't able to pursue things that would have uh, given her a career. But it was very accepted, and she was very happy to stay at home and raise three boys, I'm the eldest of three. But in, in a lot of our community, at that time especially, the, the children kind of live out the dreams of their parents. And so we were supposed to either become doctors or lawyers or engineers, so some sort of professional type. And it was very clear that uh, me being the oldest, that I was going to be the one who was going to have to, to carry the torch for whatever their, their wishes and aspirations were. And I didn't really understand what um, lawyers did. Um, and I didn't really understand engineering. It just seemed too hard. And I thought, so maybe I'll go into medicine instead. And so without having a real clear understanding of what medicine was like, uh, that was what I was going to do. I was going to be a doctor. And there was nobody in our family who was doing this sort of thing. And uh, it, was, it was off you go on this, this journey into darkness, not knowing what you're going to go find. And very early on, I was tutoring um, two girls, um, and the, their dad turned out to be um, a pediatric radiologist. And I didn't know this in the beginning. I just saw him as their dad. And uh, one day, I remember, I was upstairs in their home, and I was walking down the hallway, and I was able to, to see some of the things on the walls, and I saw his medical certificates. And at that point, I said to Danielle, I go, I didn't know your dad was a doctor. And she goes, well... He doesn't seem like one to us, right? That kind of thing. And at that point, he actually, for whatever reason, you know, kind of took a liking to me, whether it was because he had three daughters and I was the son he was he never had. I'm not quite sure how he became adopted into their family. But uh, through him, I was able to get some experience as a summer student at the Children's Hospital. And it was a summer project in my second year and a summer project again in my third year. And... Uh, the, the purpose of it was to design a, a program to teach radiology to medical students, and I knew no radiology. I knew nothing about computer you know, design and, and software programming, but he figured you know, that I probably would learn it on the way. But the, the purpose of it was to just have me there and be able to see what he did and, and what, uh, what medicine was like. And that actually was probably the, the first opportunity I had to see medicine. And I saw it as a, a kid, right? As a, a university student who doesn't really have a, a clue what's going on. And I got to see it in the children's radiology department, which was kind of a focal point for a lot of specialties. So orthopedics came through, neurosurgery, neurology, GI, everybody. And he's a big cardiac radiologist. And one of his uh, good friends at the time was a cardiac surgeon. 
and uh, between the two of them, so Dr. Cullum was the uh, cardiac radiology guy and Dr. LeBlanc was the pediatric cardiac surgeon. They, for some reason, I think they thought it was almost like a mascot or some somebody who just kind of tagged along, but they gave me a lot of opportunities and, and things that I never would have otherwise experienced. So you think of shadowing in medical school. I was doing that in undergrad in a situation where it wasn't really something that people did that way. And it was well before I'd even applied to medical school. So even by the time I entered into medical school, I already kind of knew that I liked three things. I liked uh, interventional radiology, I liked neurosurgery, and I liked cardiac surgery. And I liked them for different things, and I liked them for the different roles that they played. Radiology, I didn't see radiology quite the same way that maybe some people do. I, I saw it as solving problems, and I saw it as looking at a picture and trying to figure out what was going on whether it be from an x-ray or a CT scan or an MRI or something. But then I also got to see early on some of the, the procedural side because he was an interventional radiology person. And the kind of things that he did are very different than what gets done now, but it was a, a great introduction at a time when I had no clue really what was going on. Through neurosurgery, I met a couple people, Dr. Steinbach and Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Cochran. And both of them uh, have been immense mentors to me for different reasons. But they were just very noble men. And they dealt with very bad problems. And they dealt with kids who had brain tumors and had bad, bad things happen that they had to go and, and take care of. And the compassion that they had and the, the empathy, the connection that they had with the families really... Um, struck a chord with me. It was one of those things that I'll never forget about how they were able to talk to the families and be able to manage some very, very difficult problems and things. And through Dr. LeBlanc, as a cardiac surgeon, he's a, he's a French-speaking Canadian. He's a, a very animated, emotional guy. You know, he's one of these people who gave me my first chance to be in an operating room. And I was second assist, which meant that I got to watch him and Dr. Edmonds do the actual procedures and they were doing a variety of different congenital heart type of things. And then one day, I remember it was a Friday, uh, Dr. LeBlanc said that Dr. Edmonds had gotten married and that he was going to be away for two weeks on his honeymoon and that I was going to be first assist on Monday morning. I remember this is my first, this is actually my first year of medical school, so it was the summer and well before I decided what I was going to do. And so I got a chance to be first assistant cardiac surgery for two weeks, right? And it was, it was amazing. I thought, this, this is great. But, you know, coming back to the basic question you asked, you know, I think a lot of it was, was having people have an expectation of what we were going to be without really knowing if the suit fits. But then by the time that I had had those exposures and experiences in university through Dr. Cullum and meeting all the different people, I could see that I could, I could do that and that there was something in there that I would enjoy doing. And then I applied to medical school and fortunate enough to get in and then begins the second phase, right? The actual part of getting your MD. So it sounds like some of these experiences that you had essentially shadowing the physicians really shaped your viewpoints and gave you more insight into what a career as a doctor would look like. For medical students who maybe don't have the time to shadow or different priorities, would you say this is the best way to figure out what specialty is right for us? 
or is there something else? Um, absolutely. I think most of us are in situations where we don't have somebody in our family that uh, is in the medical field. And so we don't really have the ability to, to ask our mom or our dad or our brother or sister or our uncle or aunt what they do and why they do it and, and what made them do it. We also don't get to see that personal side of, of most of the doctors that we deal with because you're in school and you're in classes and they come and talk to you in lectures and stuff, but you don't actually get to, to know them or to see what they do and how they are. So especially with the professions that we're interested in, I always say, you know, do something that you are genuinely passionate about, something that genuinely interests you. Because then studying isn't studying. You just remember things way easier and it just st seems to stick. And so if you're pursuing things that genuinely interest you, for me, the heart and the head were the two things that genuinely interested me. It just was easier to remember all the details. And so you know, one of the things that was impressive about the people that I met through these pseudo-shadowing, I guess, was that uh, it seemed that the people who excelled at their jobs and they didn't consider them jobs. They were careers. It's kind of who they were, not what they did. And what they, what they really did was they remembered everything. They remembered the people. Sometimes they remembered their medical unit numbers. They remembered their names. They remember what they wore. They remember their medical problems and their, their stories. And to me, that really also uh, resonated because it reminded me that, that these people, each of them, we're very privileged to come in contact with them in whatever opportunity we may have because they're coming when they're most vulnerable and most upset and the most um, willing to find anyone who can help them like in the problem that might deal with their, their child or with their, with their parent. And so the best way for me was, in a way, exactly like you said, here I was, I was just hanging out. I didn't know I was shadowing. I was just hanging out and getting a chance to walk in their shoes with them. And through their eyes, I got to see their specialty. But I got to see it the way they did it, not the way that I imagined it. And so now all of a sudden, I had a better understanding that I didn't like certain specialties because I didn't really like what the people were doing, not who they were, but what they did. And I always say, you know, you can meet somebody who's a very charismatic, dynamic, outgoing, well-spoken person, and they can make paint drying on a wall look really, really cool. Or you can meet somebody who can take the most inherently interesting thing, the stuff that you may have genuinely been interested in since you were a kid, and make it sound so boring that you don't want to actually do it, in effect, turn you off. And I think that was a huge part. I think in medical school, we don't really get those kind of opportunities to see the relevance of what we learn, especially early on. And a lot of what we see is based on the emotional connection that you have with the people that do it. And I think that's part of any maturity, right, is in that maturation process. You have to first identify with the people who are doing it and then be able to see through them what they're doing and then understand if it's what you want to do. Is that something you would advise us to kind of have teased out in our brains when, when we are in these shadowing uh, opportunities, trying to separate the emotional aspect of it, how charismatic a mentor might be, or conversely, um, unfriendly, potentially, and separating that from what the actual nature of the job is. Well, it, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, but it's a very hard thing to do. 
you know, if, if you think of it, you know, as they say, the first impression is the lasting impression and you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So whenever somebody comes and hangs out with us, I think it's, it's very important for you to come in with open eyes and, and just a willingness to absorb everything that you're exposed to. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having an emotional connection or for that matter, being able to say that I don't like this because of something that emotionally just doesn't sit well with you. It's very difficult to get something back if the experience is negative. And so I think that just like you have flex projects and you have more time that is now available in medical school for you to, to delve into areas that maybe you're interested in, I think it should be probably considered mandatory for you to have the opportunity to, to shadow as well. But, you know, if you think of electives, electives are different and they suit different purposes and they come typically later. But it'd be nice for you to have opportunities that were a little bit more formalized in time so that you can actually seek out opportunities with people that are in areas that you're interested in. So before we dive into what your job looks like and what the work of a radiologist is, um, for medical students like us who are still trying to decide, what would you suggest we attribute, um, like what proportion would you suggest we attribute our decision-making process to in terms of work culture, work-life balance, um, scheduling versus the actual job versus patient demographic? I have a very simple answer to that. I wouldn't pay attention to any of that. I think you, when you look at the investment that you've made in time and in energy and effort and all the things that sometimes are what other people measure, the economics of making a decision to stay in school versus coming out early and starting to work, for instance. None of those things actually, I think, make a difference with respect to choosing what you ultimately want to do. Now, if a profession pays $1 million and another one pays you $1, I think it would be a little silly to say that you're going to go with the $1 one if they're equally interesting to you. But ultimately, you know, a $50,000 difference here or there, or even 100000 or a couple hundred thousand, you have to look at this as something that you want to wake up to go do and something that you don't count the hours and the time while you're there. I can honestly say I love everything I do. I don't do anything I don't like anymore. And I don't consider what I do as a job. I consider it something I'm fortunate to go do. And when you think of that, you think of satisfaction and gratification, what you get in your in your professional life, I think everybody strives to be doing something that it makes them feel relevant, important, somebody that they feel like they are um, a go-to person or that they're valued. And it's very difficult then if you start putting tick boxes into to certain columns and say, when well, I want a work-life balance, I want to make X amount of money, I want to live in a certain place, I want to drive a certain car, that you're thinking more with your head then, than with your heart. Ultimately, if you make a decision based on something that is emotional and feels right to you, it's the right decision, right? You're going to have to factor in some of the other things you mentioned. So I personally wouldn't recommend that. I think I see that a lot through the medical students that I've been fortunate enough to come in contact with, that they're coming at it with, with a list of expectations or a list of deliverables that probably aren't really the important question. The most important question is, do you like what you wear? Is this the suit you want to you know, be seen in? Is this the role you want to play? Because it doesn't matter how much money you made. If you're not happy when you wake up 10 years down the road to go do that job, 
and it became just a job, I think that is a very, very disappointing thing to say for where you've ended up. Do you think that's a reasonable expectation to know what we'll want 10, 20 years from now and to make a decision now based on something we're not sure of? Yeah, I, you know, if somebody asked me if my job was the same 10 years ago as it is now, the answer is no. Uh, but it's changed in a way that I've been able to change it. And it, things don't change quickly, as we know. They change slowly and they require time and effort and energy. But ultimately, it's what I wanted to do. And if you think of it more like that, each of us has stuff we want to do. So why should we then have limits put on it by other people or even ourselves? I think you just say to yourself, I want to do this. This is what I really see myself being. And then, you know, it's a leap of faith. I, I do believe that ultimately when you choose a residency program or even choosing medicine to begin with, it's a leap of faith to say that you're going to see yourself uh, being okay in that role. So for our listeners who don't know what interventional radiology is, would you mind telling us a little bit about that and what a typical day looks like for you as well? So and my job is very different than most uh, standard radiology people, I guess. So radiology is a specialty. It's a residency that you choose out of medical school. It's a five-year program. Uh, so it's similar to many of the specialty programs. The first year is classically a rotating internship type year as your PGY1 year. And after that, your next four years are dedicated to radiology-specific training. The specialty of radiology is really a diagnostic specialty. It's one that is meant to be able to diagnose problems and, and conditions in people. And so it's a very demanding specialty in terms of knowing your anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology. Uh, the, and so there's a, a huge intellectual challenge. And I think for a lot of people, that is a big reason why they come into it. There's also other factors that play into it, and which people who do tick the boxes like, uh, you know, it does have a good quality of life. It does have a manageable time frame. It does have a good income. But one of the things that people don't probably realize or probably come to realize late about radiology is it's not a frontline specialty in the sense that you're an emergency doctor who's having to perform CPR or that you're a neurosurgeon who's just performed a craniotomy to go clip a brain aneurysm, or you're an internal medicine person who's prescribing hypertension medications. You're, it was termed that you're a doctor's doctor. And I think sometimes people put it that way so that they made themselves feel a little better about the specialty of radiology. And I don't think that's true. I think that it's a second-line specialty for most things because it's in the diagnostic imaging or medical lab realm. You get a CT scan to go find out if a person has bleeding in the brain, which means then that somebody has to be able to look at that picture and tell you back if that's a yes or a no. And you say, thank you very much, and then you go on and carry on with your medical decisions based on that, that test. So I think for people who want to come into diagnostic radiology, they have to be very uh, appreciative of the fact that it truly is a diagnostic specialty that typically does not come with a significant clinical arm. So you're not going to be looking after patients if, uh, if you think that that's going to be what you do day in and day out. Interventional radiology is a fellowship that is done after you finish your residency in radiology and it's typically one or two years. In the States now you can actually go straight into interventional radiology as a residency. 
So no different than how cardiac surgery, for instance, is a, a direct entry instead of it being through general surgery and fellowships. And so I knew from the time that I was coming into, uh, into radiology that I was not going to just do diagnostic radiology. I knew I was going to do interventional radiology of some kind. And remembering back to the days of when I said that I liked the heart and the head, I knew I was going to do neuroradiology. And as I was going through the influences, the heavy influences of my early days in shadowing with uh, Dr. Cullum and in pediatric radiology, I really enjoyed pediatric IR as well. And so for whatever reason, I believed when I was going through residency that I could become a pediatric interventional radiologist, an adult interventional radiologist, a diagnostic neuroradiologist, and an interventional neuroradiologist. And if you said to anybody else, each of those is actually a specialty unto itself. And so why should one person, me, be able to find a specialty that allowed me to do all of those things? And it goes back to what I said before. I just did what I enjoyed. I didn't really uh, confine myself to the, to the rules or the things that other people said that I could or couldn't do. I just thought, why not? And I was blessed enough to have uh, profoundly important and positive mentors along the way that uh, provided me with those opportunities. And in amongst them is Nestor Miller. Dr. Miller uh, was the head of radiology at Vancouver General at the time. He became the chairman of radiology at UBC later. And between him and Dr. Cullum, Dr. Cullum became the, the head of radiology at Children's, they basically said, well, you know, Raju is, is coming through the residency program, and early on they knew what my aspirations were, and uh, they basically created my path. So they gave me a pediatric radiology fellowship in the residency. I went and applied for a neuroradiology fellowship at Duke University and got accepted for that. Because of the way the timing was going to work, I was going to have a year where I was not going to be going to, to Duke right away when I finished. And so, um, and I got married that year. And so the Interventional Radiology Fellowship at Vancouver General was a position that they essentially started a year early for me to be able to do. And if you think of it, you know, everything kind of worked. And it wasn't because um, I forced it or because you're trying to work a system or do something. It just was when when things just work out. Right? And th there were a lot of very important people who put those stones for me to walk on in front of me. And I just took the steps. Right? And by the time I finished, I had the training to be an adult interventional radiologist, a pediatric interventional radiologist, a diagnostic pediatric radiologist, diagnostic neuroradiologist, an interventional neuroradiologist. And you'd think, well, that's a lot of training. That's a lot of time. But I managed to, to condense it into a manageable period of time. And the opportunities for me to then proceed in the career I wanted weren't limited by, by the training that I had done because it was all done. It was more based on what I was going to do. So getting back to your original question, Right. What's a day in the life of, of my job? As I said, it's very different than a diagnostic radiologist because I wear many different uh, hats depending on the day that I'm working and where I'm working and what I'm doing. And so you know, take, for instance, yesterday, um, I started off reading a bunch of CT scans with one of our fellows and we're looking at you know, spine problems and brain problems and trying to diagnose this, that, and the other. 
I'm consulting on a variety of different issues and problems that people have. So they come by and ask for an opinion about what to do for this particular seizure disorder or does this person have brain death? And, and you think, you know, you're covering a lot of topics. But then I got a phone call from uh, a senior colleague of mine who's a good friend. His name is Charles Fisher. He's the head of spine surgery at BGH. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. He had a very unfortunate man who uh, had arm pain that he was attributing to him falling falling from a bike. And uh, it just wasn't getting any better. And so he went and saw a doctor. And then you can think of the timing, right? It's the new year. And for him, the present that he received as the gift for hope for a new year was a diagnosis of metastatic renal cell cancer. With that arm pain being attributed to by having a huge metastatic deposit in his cervical spine, which then led to exams that found his kidney cancer and a lung cancer. And the lung cancer came from the kidney. And so I'm going into a lot of detail on this, but the reason is because all those details matter. And if you think of a painting and you think of the brush strokes and details that make the painting, that's what makes this gratifying and fulfilling, right? Is knowing how important a role that we sometimes play. So I spent the majority of my later afternoon and early evening embolizing this metastasis in this gentleman's cervical spine so that the surgeon could perform the surgery today to remove it and be able to do it in a way that was faster, simpler, safer, less blood loss. And you think of that switch going from looking to at CT scans to all of a sudden performing a highly technical and challenging neurointerventional procedure in a very, very tough area. And that was just one day. Tomorrow morning, I'll be seeing 18 different people for a variety of different types of spine pain, whether it be neck pain or back pain. And they're going to be getting nerve root blocks and epidural injections and facet blocks. And I'll do probably 30 to 40 procedures in the morning. And that also isn't something that is routine in most radiology jobs. And so the simplest answer, again, comes back. There is no day in the life. I think each day is you know, a day in my life. And none of the days come out looking the same. Right? Each day brings something that's new and challenging. And ultimately, it's a reason why, like I said, I love everything I do because each day I get to do something different. It's interesting that you say that. I know that um, a lot of uh, physicians say that if you want to wear many different hats, that you should go into family medicine and you can shape your practice. But it sounds like to me that radiology also gives you that opportunity because you've trained in several fellowships as well. And you're able to kind of shape and do what you want to do as an interventional radiologist. I think ultimately the message that I would give is not that a specialty allows you to do that. It's the person who ultimately allows themselves to pursue that. If you think of a family physician who works in a rural community and you think of the opportunities that they have to do more than a person who's in an urban center. If you think of someone who, uh, in my situation, didn't take the, the limitations or the answers that other people said as being no, you can't. It's limitation. Stop. Don't do this. Can't be done. My question would be, why not? And I think that if you look at any specialty, whatever your interests are, and they're colored by your past, right? You think of all the opportunities and people you've met and all of the interests you have in different aspects of, of life, not just in medicine. But maybe that's the thing that ultimately you can carve a, a niche area for yourself in. So I, I wouldn't put any restriction or limitation on anyone 
to say that you have to pursue a certain specialty to do only certain things. I think that for me, I knew very early on that I did want to be the person taking the shot at the end of the game. I did want to be in a role that I was going to do something that was, in my eyes, important, relevant, difficult, challenging. I say today's difficult is tomorrow's easy, right? The bar only goes up. And so if you don't accept challenges, you're basically just going to stay where you are while others may progress. So if we really want to strive for excellence and try to achieve more, you have to push yourself more. So don't limit yourself based on choosing a specialty that other people say may give you that opportunity. Just have faith, right, that you can go find it on your own. So there are a couple of myths that I want to debunk about this field of radiology. A lot of um, my colleagues would say that um, they're afraid of going into radiology for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that you kind of mentioned that it's a, a second line specialty in the sense that, like you said, it's the, the doctor's doctor. Do you find that you have a lot less patient interaction than perhaps another specialist? It depends. So definitely from a patient interaction perspective, uh, recognizing my job, I deal with people all the time. There's virtually no day that goes by that I'm not actually seeing someone for something that gets is either going to get done or getting done. But as a diagnostic radiologist, you're absolutely right. The majority of, of some people's days and many people's days can be spent without them actually physically looking after any one patient. And I think it has to do with what, what you're happy with as your role. And so a lot of that interaction, I think the gratification for a lot of diagnostic radiology people is that they are playing a role that is important to the care of people. It's just one step removed from looking after the person themselves. And in, in our specialty, because I'm a special, uh, specialty person, neuro, pediatrics, a variety of things, the people that I have as my close list of friends and colleagues are the people that do a lot of really cool stuff. And they're also pushing the boundaries on what they're doing. And so uh, one of my favorite people of all time is Phil Teal. Dr. Teal is one of the stroke neurologists and he is an amazing man. And one of the things about Dr. Teal that has really rubbed off on me is if you don't step up, you're stepping back. And every consultation and every referral and every time we have an opportunity to discuss a patient is an opportunity for us to challenge our conventional way of thinking and, and doing it better. So I think that the myth isn't really a myth. I think it's true that diagnostic radiology doesn't give you patient contact in the way that some people uh, would want. And definitely some clinical specialties have as a given. But if that's not ultimately what drives you to, uh, to become a medical professional, if it's the challenge of certain things, and if it's a technical aspect, if it has to do with the technologies that we use, MRI, CT, you think of angio, ultrasound, right, PET, uh, all these technologies are really at the forefront of diagnosis. And the next wave of, of imaging is going to be with molecular imaging and being able to diagnose things even before they begin or being able to do things for people where the bioactive markers are really through imaging to see that this medication works. I think that it, it's very personal. For each person, you have to decide what ultimately is more important. 
do you want to be that person's doctor? Or are you satisfied with being a step away and doing something else that actually is more, more important to you? There's another myth that is um, that the field of radiology is, is constantly evolving. And like you said, there's a lot of technologies uh, that you have to get familiar with. Um, there's this notion or idea that perhaps the field will be taken over by the technology and there'll be, there'll be less room for radiologists um, in the workplace. Do you find that to be true? Is that something that people are fearful of or is that something that you think would never happen? I'm going to answer that in a bit of a, with an ignorant statement, right? And the, the statement comes by saying that I've never actually even cared. I see everything as opportunities to improve what we do. If somebody comes up with a program that allows us to count little dots in the lungs better than a human can, by all means, go do that. But integration of knowledge and being able to connect the dots and being able to pull in things from different places is very difficult sometimes to do. And if you look at shows like House and ER and all these other places, the person who is the, the true specialist, the true doctor, is someone who has an immense background and, and knowledge and resources and contacts and cases. And computers may not be able to say, I remember this patient who had X condition and we treated with Y drug and resulted in this problem or issue. And it's hard to make those connections. I think humans will probably always do a better job with that. If something comes along that, just think of it like Star Trek in a tricorder. And if I can have something that's in my hand and allows me to reach a diagnosis accurately, quickly, and renders every other piece of imaging technology archaic, I wouldn't be afraid of that. Isn't that better? If I can't find my role in that situation, then you have to start wondering, what are you really afraid of? Is it pride? Is it ego that's driving your involvement? Otherwise, I mean, why wouldn't you embrace that opportunity? Because somebody's going to improve and be better for it. I don't see any of this as a threat. I think that artificial intelligence, I think improvements in technology, all these things, I, I am not a physicist. I'm in radiology, and I have the basic understanding of the imaging tools. What I really care about is how they help me see what I need to see and be able to figure out what I need to figure out. I've become very good at that part. But I don't understand how photons work, and I don't really care to understand the MR physics. And so that might be one of the other myths, myths yeah. that people have about radiology, is you have to question. be a specialist. <laughs> In these things, I don't think that's true at all. I see that if I understand congestive heart failure and I understand what it does to pulmonary vascular redistribution and I know what that looks like, then it doesn't matter if the imaging technology is CT-based, MR-based, ultrasound-based, whatever it might be. A picture is a picture is a picture. And as long as I understand what I need to see, they're translatable skills. So just how much physics training is there then in residency for radiology? Enough to be able to make me pass my exams, <laughs> but not enough to make me know how to build a nuclear bomb. Probably Excellent. a good thing for most of us. <laughs> were, there any, were there any other myths in your field that you would like to address? Well, I think that the biggest myth about radiology, I think we've already addressed, is that people really don't know what radiology is. I think it really is a, a black box of misunderstanding and a lot of people assume that you deal with radiation and it must be cancer 
or that they uh, they don't really understand the role and the relevance of the specialty. The term radiology is a little bit misleading, and some people have tried to change it to medical imaging. But radiologists, fine, it doesn't really matter. As I just said, I wear the title, but if you look at what I do, it covers a broad spectrum of different topics and, and areas, and it's very difficult to define my job. I think more importantly, it's not the, the title that matters. It's what you get out of it. And so if I'm a quantum mechanics specialist, I'm pretty sure most people have no idea what that means, you know, especially my mom and dad. But if you step back and say, if it allows me to find a meaning for what I do when I wake up in the morning and I come home in the evening, if it's something that allows me to carry with it a passion and an energy and some, some inner drive that allows me to push to become more each day and to be better each day, each day then ultimately that's what matters. I don't think titles matter and descriptive roles matter. I think what matters more is whether it provides you that door to walk through to do what you want to do. Um, so in our research, we found that uh, you won an award for patient-centered care. Could you talk about that as a radiologist who supposedly doesn't have as much uh, clinical exposure to patients? What does that mean for you? It means a lot. I remember the exact situation. You know, that I've been fortunate enough to win it twice, actually, um, and for different reasons, different people. The first one uh, was for a 12-year-old girl who had a low-grade brain tumor. Uh, she it belongs to a family that was Jehovah's Witness uh, by their religion and by what they practice as their customs. And then, unfortunately for her, she developed a, a brutal um, malignant degeneration of her brain tumor where it had to come out. And at the time, the neurosurgeon, I've already spoken about him, Dr. Steinbach, uh, was someone who didn't, didn't just do things by convention. He's a, a very, very skilled, talented, caring person who looked at the whole dynamic. And the family chose not to want any sort of transfusion because that's part of what their religious beliefs are. And so he asked if we could do a preoperative embolization of a malignant primary brain tumor. And that's virtually unheard of. For me to deliberately go up into the brain circulation and to block up the circulation to kill the tumor, that's not a foreign concept outside of the brain. We do that routinely for a bunch of different things. But to do that in the brain is to give her a stroke. And that concept is so foreign. But he was willing to entertain it, to, strictly for the reason of saying, I'm going to give her the same stroke by removing that part of the brain. If you can make it faster, easier, simpler, safer for me to do it, then it saves her from a transfusion. And so we did that. That was the first time that I had ever been asked to and that I had done a primary brain tumor where we got, went up into different blood vessels of the brain and deliberately stroked parts of her brain that ultimately were going to be removed for surgery, but purely just to make it so that there was going to be less blood loss. And he went and did the surgery. She required no blood, uh, no blood transfusions. She made actually a very good recovery. Her type of tumor ultimately was going to kill her, and it did in a year's time. And, you know, you think of that. That's a horrible situation. But the family was very, very appreciative of the fact that we stepped outside of the conventional way of thinking. 
and we looked at her as a unique person deserving of any opportunity to try to respect her and their wishes. And what I got back uh, from them was the ultimate way of the, them saying thank you in a way, which was them uh, acknowledging the role of a radiologist in the care of their child um, by saying that, that I was one of the clinical specialists. I find that uh, obviously it's, it's, it's still with me. I remember everything about it, but I always think, isn't that the reason why we do what we do? So that we you know, still have that feeling of, of wanting to matter and doing it the right way. I wouldn't do it any different. I would do exactly the same thing. And, you know, the, it's, it's a really neat thing for me to be able to be in a specialty that is dominantly supposed to be a second line specialty, but to routinely be in positions where uh, you receive thank yous and gifts and acknowledgement from the people you look after for the things that you do that make a, a difference in their lives, whether it be a simple injection to make their pain better or to be able to treat dramatically horrible problems that are unique and come off as, as the gazelles of medicine. And probably the last thing that I'll say to that is that I actually, I do have performance anxiety still. Um, and that's because, as I said, the bar never comes down. It only goes up. And so, you know, if you do something today, that becomes what you're expected to do tomorrow. But the thing is, I don't do it any different if it's somebody's mom or dad, or if there's somebody that is uh, a VIP's family member, or if it's someone who I have never met before, I do it the same way for everybody and do it the way that I do it as if I wanted it for me or someone in my family. This really ties into what you were saying earlier about making your own path and taking a specialty that is kind of known for being black and white um, and incorporating such a human aspect into it. I think it's very important. I think, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges for anybody coming out of medical school and going through medical school is to be able to identify with an area uh, of their learning that they feel truly turned on by and that they feel like they want to go into. And I mean, I, re I recognize through this opportunity to come and speak with you that a lot of what I've said has centered around a very human and uh, uh, aspect of radiology that might seem foreign for many people. But for others, the drivers may be very different. They may not want any of that. For others, they might be a very technical specialty where there are, they, they enjoy the challenge of doing something like microvascular reconstruction or some form of, of new technology that allows them to implant a heart valve, for instance. So it's not my place to tell any one person in medical school, go do, go be me, right? Be like Raju. Uh, I think that it's way more important to say, go be yourself right? go find something that f fits your personality and suits you in a way that allows you to recognize that the strengths of your personality can come through in the specialties that you choose. How diverse would you say the people in your field are? And what kind of medical students do you think tend to gravitate towards radiology, if you could generalize that far? 
Well, I always say anybody who hangs out with me is going to enjoy radiology and probably for the most part start seriously thinking about whether they should do it as a specialty. And that's why I was saying at the very beginning, it's important to understand if it's the message or the messenger. Um, there's no doubt that hanging out with me is fun, especially when we're doing what we do. Uh, but it comes from a place that uh, one of the, some of the, the smartest coolest, most fun, interesting people that I met in medical school, uh, in medicine, I should say, not medical school, were the doctors that didn't have a stethoscope. They borrowed yours. They didn't have a pen, right? They took someone else's. They didn't have cheat sheets, notes in their pocket. They didn't have a, a phone that they could go search for this, that, or the other answer. It was all in their head. And I love that. The challenge of knowing things so well and being able to not have a list of 20, but know the list of three, better yet, know the list of one, and always have the answer. That's the ultimate challenge for me, being good enough so that you're right all the time. And we know you'll never do that. But I mean, that's, that's what really drives me with respect to diagnostic radiology, being good enough that my opinion is relevant all the time. When it comes to the interventional radiology piece, it's to be able to rise to the challenge of whatever might come and to not be constrained by the thoughts of what gets done. It's to go do something. Right? And I bring this up and it's something that I use in presentations. Before, people used to ask me, what can you do? Now they ask us, what can't you do? And it's a very different culture then. You can see if people come and ask you, what can't you do? They assume you can walk on water and do things that they never dreamed of before. I think that's fun. That's ultimately a huge challenge in interventional radiology. It's my main driver, actually, is to go and do things that others may not be willing, capable, or, or wanting to do. And it doesn't mean that I'm better than them. It just means that I'm willing to try to make myself better to go do them. It's a difference. It's a subtle difference, and I hope people can pick up on that. It's... It's a very difficult thing. I think, you know, at the end of the day, when you're in medical school, you are faced with trying to figure out if you like something. And you started it as a question early on. You know, then how do you separate yourself from the emotional part of what you experience versus the actual part that gets done? And I told you, you don't need to. You really don't. Because if all I've done is to be able to show you that you can go and achieve what you want, and not be confined by the rules of the game to go do it. That you can be whatever you want to be within whichever specialty you may choose. I think I've achieved my ultimate goal, which would be to say, don't, you know, don't let me tell you what to do, right? Go, go and do it yourself. And my, as I said, my parents still don't really have a clue what I do. My Both my brothers, one of my brothers is a neurosurgeon. He's the middle one. My little brother's a PhD. We're profoundly tight as a family. Right? And uh, we care about each other fiercely. I use that word uh, deliberately because nothing that you care about comes without having a hot and a cold to it and an emotional good and bad. And so you know, if, if you don't fight unless you're actually engaged and passionate about something. So... For us, we, we get after each other and we're always talking to each other and things. But you you wear different um, you know different suits, as I said. Right? My brother's a neurosurgeon. He's the smartest guy I know. 
by far. And he is perfectly suited to a specialty. And he's, in my opinion, he's probably one of the best neurosurgeons around. But you know what? He wouldn't want it any other way. That's his personality. And my little brother is uh, is an amazing man. An absolutely amazing man. And just look at what we all three of us strive to be, which was to be like my dad. You know, and uh, my brother, my little brother's doing a pretty good job of that. You know, I think that what you're hearing now is the reason why you go to medical school and the people who actually shape your life before you went into medical school. And there's no part of medical school that uh, comes as that is the key piece of my puzzle, right? My family existed and continues to exist well before any of this happened. And they're my emotional my emotional support. I'm married, as I mentioned, have three kids. And my wife is a, is a wonderful person, probably one of the kindest people, if not the kindest person I've ever met. And she's somebody that when you step back and you look at what I do, she just, she knows exactly who she got. And she's not upset by me coming home late. And she's not upset by me going in when I'm not on call. And she's not upset by the fact that that I do what I do and spend the amount of time I spend doing it. Um, as I said, she knows exactly what she got, but she knows that's that's me. And my three kids, they're wonderful. And the biggest compliment I got from them and get from them is they want to be like their dad. If you ask them, you know, ask my little guy, he'll say that he wants to be a radiologist. He has no clue what that means, none. And if you ask my daughter, who's 14, and she's the best person I know, by the way. My wife hates it when I say that. But, you know, she, she, she understands this. She's got more empathy and compassion and, and just caring in her than I find in most people. And whatever she does is going to be amazing. And Arjun, you know, we went on a trip to go watch you know, a basketball game uh, over the Christmas holidays. And he is a wonderful, funny you know, amazing little guy who is 12 years old, well, 11, and he's going to one day be an absolute gem. I know it. And so I'm lucky. I've said that at the very beginning. I'm very, very lucky. I've met some very important people. I've said, you know, um, people that mean a ton to me. But I just get to do what I was supposed to do. I really believe that. And so professionally, I think that uh, you know, the decisions, the choices, the path, the, you know, the journey that one takes, uh, it's allowed me to achieve a lot of the things that I never even knew I could. And what's even better is I don't know what tomorrow will bring or a year or 10, but I look forward to continuing that journey. It's really great you bring up your family. There's a lot of people who feel they have to make a decision between having a family as a priority and their work. Um, would you say radiology really makes room or is conducive to family life? Yes, that's for sure. I mean, the, when you're in specialties that have um, more people practicing in a group practice, for instance, it, it makes it so that the hours may be a bit more manageable. But there is a neurosurgeon that I met early on named Brian Toyota. Uh, Dr. Toyota was one of the first people that showed me that in neurosurgery, which is um, traditionally thought to be a very demanding specialty, very time intensive, very something that really can suck 
uh, a huge amount personally from people. But he played hockey all the time, and he had a number, a huge number of kids, and he's out there, and he's living his life, and he's still practicing a subspecialty neurosurgical practice in an academic center. And I saw that as, well, if he can do it, I can do it. We kind of talked about this earlier. If you're looking for a positive mentor and a role model, all you need is one to show you that that you're not wrong in believing that maybe you can do it too. But radiology definitely has a better lifestyle than most specialties. I can definitely tell you that interventional radiology has made my lifestyle worse <laughs> by being on call more often, by being in hospital earlier, by leaving later. But I think when you make that kind of investment clinically, that comes with it. And if you ask virtually every clinical specialist of any kind, their hours are going to be usually longer, especially surgical specialties. You know, I think it's, it's something when you look at family and stuff. I have another person who's very important. Her name's Ranjit, and she's somebody that um, saw, sees me for who I am. Right? And another person named Roz, who's my senior nurse manager at Vancouver General, and they're all the same. They're all people who are, you don't wake up in the morning and say good morning to. You talk to them about what you're going to do next because everything else is implied. And what's implied is that you care about them. And if there's one thing that I think I've always been able to um, maintain through the years of studying and training and staying up late and going in early is that you do it because it's something you truly care about and that you have an opportunity to show that through whatever profession that you choose. I personally believe it's, it's very important to not forget your path, not forget the people that, that brought you there because it's, it's those people that allowed, lifted you up and supported you and gave you that opportunity. Uh, I was also told, um, you know, say we, not me because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's to say it takes a village to raise a child. I think it takes a huge number of people to give us the opportunities to, to pursue medicine. Early on in this conversation, you had mentioned doctors who see their work as a career rather than just a job and who really um, dive into their work and it becomes their identity. Do you think, how do you, how do, you do or create a balance between that mentality and others who say that it's the things outside of their work that make them so good at what they do. As I was saying, I think it's intensely per personal. I think for any one person, it, the, the makeup of their experiences and what they've done to get to that point and what they look to achieve in the future is something that you can't really template and say to people that this is what you should do it like or this is how you should do it. I think probably one of the best experiences that shadowing and and opportunities to hang out with the different types of doctors gives you is it gives you a whole bunch of different people and uh, to be able to to sample and to kind of try on for size and if you're fortunate enough to know them better and to to talk to them more you get to understand some of the makeup of what they've you know of what brought them to that point but you know I think Dr. Thiel said this to me early on, and because uh, I thought, and this may actually be something that many of the people who hear this uh, can identify with this, I thought that if I was working too hard, 
spending too much time at the hospital, that I felt like I was stressed all the time trying to be as good a doctor and as good a son and as good a husband and as good a parent, uh, that something was going to break, fall through the cracks. I was going to miss something. I wasn't going to, uh, to achieve it all, that I was going to fail. And a lot of us, I, I think, are driven by a fear of failure. Right? And so what Dr. Thiel told me, he goes, I asked him, how do you find balance in your life? Because in my eyes, he was a superb clinician, right? He was this great man you know, with his wonderful you know, two daughters and his wife. And he's got a great personality. He's you know, quick to laugh. He's got a great sense of humor. He's academically accomplished. And I go, how, how can people exist like that? That they're this brilliant and amazing. I mean, I must suck if they're that good, right? Ultimately, what is wrong with me? And maybe that's something else people can you know, identify with is what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? And he said to me the very simple answer. He goes, I don't have balance. He goes, I try each day to do everything the best I can. And then I go to bed and then I wake up and I try to do everything as good as I can again and again and again. And whether that be in work or in his academic career, his personal life, he just tried to do everything the best he could. And at some point, your path and journey show you what, you, uh, what matters more to you. And it might be fly fishing. It might be, you know, jumping with a wingsuit. Well, somewhere in Switzerland, I don't know. It might be sailing your boat across the Atlantic. It might be writing 350 academic papers. I don't know. It doesn't really matter because for each person, as I said, that becomes something they sort out over time. All I knew was I was, I was profoundly afraid of sucking at home and at work and academically and opportunities to go and give talks at meetings and things. So I just tried to do everything as good as I could. Okay, well, I think we're approaching the end of our interview. Um, thank you so much for your candor, your guidance, your stories, and we really appreciate the time that you've taken to speak with us today. And we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you. Thank you for this, uh, what I consider to be a huge privilege to come and be able to be a part of this. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Heron. Just I just want to end off with one, one last thing. Could I ask you what's something you're really proud of in your work? That's a hard question. Um, I'll start by saying I'm thankful first for meeting some very important people. And I mentioned them already. You know, obviously, my family, my, my wife, my parents, my brothers, my kids, my you know, everybody in my family, they're the people that get you here. Right? Uh, I mentioned Ranjit earlier on and Ross and other people like Phil Teal, uh, people that are also very important for the reasons that they know. And so I think it's, it's important that that comes across first, that, uh, that, that they be thanked for the role that they played to be able to, to, to build and shape the me that you see in front of you. You know, in a word, I think it would come back to um, perseverance. To not accept what other people say that 
uh, I was supposed to do. I'm most proud of the fact that I persevered through many challenges uh, to allow me to have what I consider to be a very gifted and wonderful career that comes with opportunities to affect people in ways that I never thought I could and to do things with people that I never thought would would be done that way. You know, I'm proud to be my parents' son. I really am. To be able to to do it right. Right. That's actually what I'm most proud of. Thank you so much, Dr. Heron. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of the Metamorphosis podcast, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube at UBC MedVid. See you soon.